The following podcast should not be treated as financial advice. If you're looking for financial advice, please go see a registered financial advisor. Welcome to the very first episode of the QAV Investing Podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. I'm going to be the producer and co-host of this series, uh, but I know nothing about investing. For that, we're going to be turning to my mate, Tony Kynaston, who's a very successful professional investor. Now, whether you're a brand new investor or somebody who's been doing it for a long time and is just looking to pick up some new tips or tricks, I think you're really going to enjoy this show. And I'll tell you why. Look, I've known Tony 10, 11 years, something like that. Uh, we, we met through some other podcasts that I was doing. And we've become pretty good mates. We've worked on a number of projects together, a book and a film, and, and we've travelled around the world, spent quite a bit of time, gotten to know him very well, his family very well. But it's only been in the last couple of years that I've really started to learn more about what he does. Uh, so Tony's story, and he'll tell it to you himself over the course of uh, this episode, but he is a corporate executive, worked for Coles and Shell, places like that, and then 30 years ago decided to become an investor and taught himself through trial and error, as you'll hear. Didn't all go very well in the early stages. But there are a few things that make him different and a few reasons why I think you uh, should listen to what he has to say. Number one is... He's very down to earth. Uh, you know, a lot of the people out there pitching investing type things are very flashy, uh, very dramatic. Tony, as you'll hear, is complete opposite to that. He's uh, mid fifties, very down to earth, very quiet, very shy, very humble guy. I had to twist his arm to convince him to do this show in the first place. He'd rather be completely uh, behind the scenes and off the radar, have no profile at all, not really interested in that. Secondly. Uh, he's very successful, as he will explain over the course of this episode. Uh, humbly, though, his portfolio over the last 20, 25 years has returned an average of 19.5%, which is about double what the ASX does. And so um, that's, a, that's a good result, as we'll explain. If you, if you look at a lot of the most successful investors around the world, being able to do that decade in, decade out is quite difficult. And the reason Tony has been able to do that, and this is the third point, is that he has developed a checklist that helps him determine which stocks to invest in. And that's what he's going to teach us over the course of this podcast series, is that checklist system. It's actually deceptively simple once you get your head around it. It's based on publicly available knowledge, uh, some, some online services that he uses to get some of it. But most of it, it comes from the published financial information of companies on the Australian Stock Exchange. And what Tony does is he pulls out that data, throws it into a spreadsheet, and then the spreadsheet gives him a score. And that score basically helps him determine whether the stock is a buy or not. And that's what he's going to teach us uh, over the course of the series. As I said, now it, it requires a little bit of financial literacy. And certainly for me, that's been one big part of the journey. I, I needed to understand the terminology. I needed to understand how to read these financial results. 
And, you know, that might take you six or 12 months if you're new to that sort of thing, if you haven't done that kind of thing before. And then the spreadsheet itself is pretty self-explanatory, and you can have a look at it by going up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au. If you haven't already, you can see the basics of the checklist. There's nothing particularly secret or magic about that. The, the trick is in knowing how to use it, and that's what the podcast is going to be about. Now, there are two parts to this podcast. There's the free weekly podcast where I talk to Tony about investing principles. And then for the really hardcore, serious investors, we have a premium series, and that's where we're going to drill down into analyzing company stocks from week to week. But you're free to listen to the free uh, podcast for as long as you want. If you decide you want to get more serious and you want to get more of the detailed breakdowns over time and hear Tony's thoughts on that, go up to our website and uh, become a QAV Club member. We'll also be doing some fairly regularly regular events. We get to sit down with Tony and ask him his thoughts on these things. But again, this is not financial advice. We're not financial advisors. This is a podcast about financial literacy and, and Tony's methodology which you can pick it up and, and use it to whatever level you feel comfortable with over the course of the show. So let's get into telling a little bit about Tony's story. Uh, in this first episode, we'll talk a little bit about Tony's background, how he got involved in investing and some of his uh, trial and error experiences, how he developed his methodology and his checklist. And then over the course of the next few episodes, we'll start to teach you how he uses the checklist. We'll run through some real life examples. So that's what the series is going to be about. And now I guess it's time to introduce Tony Kynaston. Tony, Welcome. Finally, you've got your own podcast. You're on the other side of the mic after uh, 10 years. Hello. What an, what an introduction. I've never had anyone say such good things about me before. You like that? Yeah, I thought you'd like I that. I liked it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Lovely. That's yeah, good. So, mate, um, let's start by uh, getting you to tell a little bit about your story, a bit of the potted history of how we got here. Yeah, well, um, thanks to the smarts of your kids <laughs> <laughs> interviewing me on their podcast. That's how we got here. But um, no, I think you've summarised it well. Uh, I grew up in Brisbane, and to be to be brutally honest, I couldn't wait to get out. Quite frankly, I mean, I like <laughs> Brisbane now. Love it when I go back and visit family and friends. Visit you because I'm here. Yeah, yeah, and Fox yeah, yeah. and Chrissy and Fox and Chrissy. Yeah, yeah, my wife. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when I was growing up, yeah, it was very much a a one-horse town, um, and I thought there was more to the world than that. Not, not that there was anything wrong with the, the people who stayed there, and, and I've got good friends who lived their whole lives in the same postcode, but it um, just wasn't how I wanted to spend my life. So, yeah, so I, I went to Queensland University. Um, I did a Bachelor of Science degree. Took a long time to do it because along the way I got involved in student politics. So to cut a long story short, Tony had the opportunity after university to go into uh, politics, decided not to do that, although many of the people that he was in the student union with did, and you would know their names if uh, we mentioned them. He ended up going to work for the Shell organisation, uh, started in IT, ended up in uh, management there, eventually got headhunted by Coles Meyer, ended up in senior management there running Meyer Direct and businesses like that. Um, and then one day Coles Meyer got a buyout bid from KKR, the 
the famous American buyout firm, leverage buyout firm. If anyone's read uh, Barbarians at the Gate or seen the movie, that's mm. KKR who are behind that. They were the kind of uh, creators of leverage management buyouts and, uh, you know, raided companies in the US in particular and eventually overseas. The inspiration for guys like Gordon Gecko, right? Yeah, that's right. And um, who was the other guy who went to jail? Uh, is it? Drexel Burnham and those guys, yeah. So Milken, Michael Milken. Michael Milken, that was the guy I was thinking of. Mm. Anyway, so they lobbed a bid for Coles Meyer and that started a bidding war. And um, I, I was actually so there ended up being a number of, of bidders for Coles Meyer, and Tony saw his opportunity to get out while the going was so good. Going. I went to my boss and said, "Look, um, you know, if, if you want to, uh, if you're giving out redundancies, as, and they were as part of the defence for the for the buyouts." Uh, for these uh, offers that were being made, they were trying to cut costs. Um, I said, I'd be happy to take one. And that's, as you said, was around the time that um, I decided to uh, to stop working corporate and to look after my daughter. And soon after that, Jenny, my, my wife, who's, who still works corporate um, in, some, in some wonderful senior roles, she got a, a role in New Zealand. So we moved overseas to New Zealand and spent three years in Wellington, which was a great experience. And then eventually uh, moved to Canada and spent five years there, and we've just come back to Sydney. So he moved around a lot. Now, during the course of his employment at Coles, Tony had been given share options, which is a pretty common thing in large companies. And as a result of the bidding war, the value of those share options had gone up quite substantially. And he saw this was a good opportunity to exercise those options, get some cash out of them and turbocharge his investment portfolio, which had been going for about 10 years at that stage. And in doing so, he learned a pretty valuable lesson. I went in to see the company secretary on the day I was leaving, and I I had to either exercise my options at that stage or to uh, cut a check for the cost of the options. So I went into the company secretary's office, gave him a check, um, which came off the mortgage for our house and said, yeah, you must be very busy these days um, transferring options for people and exercising options for people. And he said, no, you're the only one. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the vast majority of management every year when they got options would let them creep up a little bit, then exercise them and sell them and go and take a holiday or put a pool in or buy a car. And he said, you're, you're about the only one who's kept them all the way along and you've made a lot of money out of them. And I was just floored. And it, that was a bit of a learning for me that um, a lot of people who are managers in big companies aren't, aren't great investors. They're, um, they're good at the political side and they're probably good at managing people and things like that, but they're um, probably not great investors. So that was that was surprising. And it's, I guess, always been in the back of my head when I look at companies that I'm investing into to in particular look for someone who was, um, has a big stake in the company because uh, then, then there's alignment between management and the um, and the shareholders. So that's that's pretty much the potted story. Uh, like I said, we've just moved back to Sydney. Let's talk about your early experiences as uh, as an, an active, hands-on investor. Yeah, sure. So the first time I invested was when I was working for the Shell Company. So that, that must have been around mid to late 80s, I suppose. Um, anyway, they, the Shell brought in a policy where they provided us with a, a loan, um, which was at the company interest rate rather than the normal retail interest rate. So we had a two or three percent discount uh, on the on the borrowing cost for the money. And so, mate of mine and I said, "Well, this is great. Let's let's get our feet wet at investing. Let's let's borrow the money and let's go." And 
we didn't really know where to start or what to do. So, you know, we went and visited some stockbrokers and got, got their advice. And uh, we went and visited a friend who was a property developer and looked at what he was doing. And in the end, we decided we wanted to be share invested, but we wanted to do it ourselves rather than following, you know, um, a particular portfolio the stockbrokers had outlined for us or anything like that. Um, and I think in that first year, we made all the mistakes you can make on the share market. We've, we'd hear we'd hear tips from colleagues who'd struck it rich in this or that startup. And so we'd pile into that, but much too late and it would go down and we'd lose money. We would, um, because we were working at Shell, we'd often get a, a, a bit of a gossip about um, oil exploration companies, again, mostly in the startup phase with no cash flow or no profit, certainly. And we'd have a, we'd have a go at those. And often they're like a one or two cent penny dreadful stock. And, they lived up to their names and, and um, they would go backwards as well. So I think at the end of the first year, I'd, I'd lost half the line. And uh, I said to myself, well, this isn't going too well. I've got to try and educate myself here. Otherwise, I'm going to go broke and, and owe Shell lots of money I can't repay easily. Um, so I started casting around and, and, you know, reading newsletters and magazines and books and one day in an airport bookstore, I came across a book called The Making of an American Capitalist by Roger Lowenstein. And that was the first biography I came across about Warren Buffett. Now, if you don't know who Warren Buffett is, he's an American investor, one of the most successful investors in the world, in history. I think he's currently the third wealthiest person in the world. His net worth is like $80, $90 billion. Uh, and he's he's quite old. He's in his late 80s. He runs a company called Berkshire Hathaway. That's his investment vehicle. And he has been a professional investor for, for many, many decades now, kind of the most legendary investor in the world, I think. And I just thought that was fantastic. Love the story. Um, it had a lot of uh, uh, content about Buffett's investing you know, lots of interviews or lots of uh, statements by Buffett. And I thought, this is great, value investing. So I started reading up on value investing, went out and bought all the books I could that um, had been written about Buffett. And the good thing about Buffett is that he has himself um, published a lot through his annual shareholder letters. And they're available on the web, on the Berkshire Hathaway website, which is his company. So you can go there and read them for free. They go back to the 60s, I think, from memory. But they're also um, relatively inexpensive books you can buy which which either summarize them or reprint them in book form and uh, they just you know chock full of just down-to-earth wisdom and it really struck a chord with me and uh, and so yes yeah, so I started to try and to learn how to value invest and um, started to pay more attention to the company financials uh, in Australia that, that come out twice a year and uh, started to turn the portfolio around slowly and um, over time it, it's grown from there and it's grown at sort of 19.5% since then, since the, when was that, the mid, mid to late 80s, early 90s. So say that again. So it's grown at 19.5%. You're saying that's been your average return since the 1980s? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So say early 90s. Right. Now, 19.5%, uh, how does that compare with the market? It's basically twice the market. It's double market. So the, historically, over the last 100 years or so, the share market goes up at about 10% per annum. 
Um, so 19.5% is Buffett territory. He, he, I think the last time I saw his figures are around 19%. Um, so, yeah, it's good. It's up there. I know you said before that I was um, a successful investor and, and I acknowledge that. But Wait for it. This is where Tony's uh, or shucks country boy humility kicks in. Just just give him a moment to get this off his chest. He wouldn't feel good about himself if we didn't let him get this out of his system. I would think there are other people out there who are like me who have, have been able to get this kind of return through doing it themselves. And I think one of the things that um, – that's helped me along the way is the tools that are available these days. I mean, it's for a start, you've got spreadsheets, which make it much easier to analyze numbers quickly. But there are also some tools out there. There's lots of uh, computer-based tools and subscription services, which I subscribe to, which, again, make it easy to analyze company data. And they also, you know, give you their opinions on quality of companies and, and value and things like that. So there's a lot of shortcuts today. And, and I think... Well, I mean, some of the tools I subscribe to, they're also claiming sort of eight, 17 to 19% returns if you follow their processes as well. So it's, yeah, it's it's good compared to the market. Um, it's twice market, which is really good, but I, I wouldn't be alone in achieving those results. All right. Now, let me, let me just put a break on things here. Tony, uh, as you can tell, very laid back, uh, very humble guy. He says he's not alone and he's Probably right, but you know, before we started this podcast, when I was thinking about doing the podcast, I googled who is Australia's best investor, and I came up with a couple of articles, recent articles, and I just want to use this to put it in perspective here. So, there's an article from the Financial Review dated uh, 2015. It's talking about a guy called Richard Fish, aka Dick Fish. Uh, which, if nothing else, is one of the greatest names I've heard recently. And it calls him Australia's best investor. And it quotes Dick Fish as getting an 18.5% per annum return over his 25-year career, so slightly less than Tony. And then I've got another article from 2015. This one's from the Sydney Morning Herald. It's called, uh, Who is Australia's Warren Buffett? And it talks about a guy called uh, Kerr Nielsen, who they say, uh, with his funders, delivered a 13% per year return over 20 years. So I'm not trying to say that Tony is better than these guys, but on the surface of it, uh, he certainly seems to be performing pretty well by comparison. Maybe there are people doing it like yourself in secret. Yeah, I think there are. I'm sure there are. Uh, a lot of self-funded retirees these days. I'm sure there's people out there doing it similar to me. I wouldn't know how many. Okay, so let's talk then about um, your strategy that you've developed over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, we've called this podcast QAV. I like to pronounce it QAV just because it sounds wacky. Um what does Q, it was your suggestion though? What does QAV mean? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, it's short for quality at value, and that's, I guess, in a nutshell, uh, I think the essence of investing. Um, the value side of it comes out of Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett, or I should say, the early Warren Buffett. After after Charlie Munger partnered up with him, they became quality investors. So that's where the quality at value comes along. Now, who's this Charlie Munger character he's talking about? Well, as he sort of indicated, Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's 
partner. He's the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. They've been together again for decades, I think, since the 70s. He's also a billionaire. He's, uh, I think, 95 at this stage. And when he was a teenager, he worked at Buffett & Son, a grocery store owned by Warren Buffett's grandfather in Omaha, Nebraska, where they're both from. And then uh, he and Buffett ended up working together years later. So um, there, there you, that's who Charlie Munger is, in case you were wondering. Another legend in investment circles. And um, Buffett kind of changed tack from, from buying what he used to call cigar butt stocks. Um, and they called cigar butt stocks because you're finding something which is um, down on its luck, but you hope to pick it up and get one more puff out of it before it collapses. And that's the ultimate value investing. Um, so he changed from being a, a sort of hyper value investor like that into a quality investor. And he says um, that was probably the, the best thing he ever did. He would much rather buy a quality in, investment at the right price than a poor investment at a cheap price. And so that's where the quality side comes in. And and that I mean that resonates in everyday life. You you know you. Investing or, or buying something, it's nirvana when you see a good brand on sale. You know, it's that's the best time to buy. I think most people can understand that. So that's why I call it quality at value. We're looking for two things. We're looking for shares or for companies that have good business track records, not much gearing, lots of cash flow, have been around for a while, have the right kind of management, have some kind of competitive advantage. We're looking for all those things. And we're trying to buy them at the right price. That's where the value side comes in. Now, um, let's uh, let's talk uh, a little bit about the idea for this podcast. So really what um, I, I think we're going to do with it is get you to teach us the details about your system, how you analyze these companies and why you would make a decision to invest in company A and not in company B. But I guess the question that people might be asking is, um, why would you do something like that? Why would you share your secrets? Yeah, it's a good question. I've been asking myself the same question, and Jenny's been asking me the same question. Uh, it's really to help you. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, that's honest. Uh, it's to help <laughs> me, and I appreciate that that you're taking your time. And you, but you, um, is it? You were already talking about writing a book that talked about um, correct financial yeah. wisdom yeah is it something that you feel like these things that you've learned is it something that's uh should be kept a secret or is it something that you want to get out there so more people become financially literate yeah it's the latter definitely i mean um jenny and i yeah started to write a book on investing and financial literacy and jenny had some time off work at one stage in her career and and then got a job so he didn't didn't finish it but um yeah, it bothers me that uh, I, I keep. Uh, I don't want to say things like that. This stuff isn't taught in schools because, you know, I have friends who are school principals that say everybody says that, and we just can't fit it all in. Mm. Um, but it isn't learnt openly somewhere, and it, it particularly bothered me probably about ten years ago when um, the GFC was happening, and and my father came to me one day when he, at that stage he was retired and in his seventies. And he said, you know, Sam, would you have a look at my finances, please? Because um, all my mates are selling their portfolios and, and going into cash. And this was at the time of about 2009, early 2009. So it was about the time the share market was just about to go for a big run. 
And I persuaded Dad not to do that, but he could have easily have done that and missed out on all the, you know, missed out on all the upside and basically did the old classic, instead of buying low and selling high, buying high and selling low. And as I looked into his financials, I worked out that all he had ever received was just bad advice, just poor, expensive, crap advice. And that made me really angry. And that's one of the reasons why I want to share just, you know, investing common sense with people. Um, it's not rocket science. It, it's common sense. You know, you don't want to pay a lot of fees for things. You you want to buy quality, as we said before, at value. There are just there are lots of aphorisms, lots of sayings and saws in the, the share market industry, and we'll go through those, I guess, over the podcast series. But it is just common sense. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess it might be because of the way the Australian financial services industry has gone over the last 20 or 30 years since superannuation uh, laws were brought in. And again, if people are hearing this overseas in Australia, if you're a, a, uh, an employee of a company, they put aside nine and a half percent of your salary into a fund. And the idea is you're meant to live off that in your retirement. And it takes the load off the government to pay you a pension, even though we still do have pensions. Um, but that's just become a trough for every Spiven Australia to, to stick their snout in and, and charge fees and, and live like a fat cat off people who don't know what they're doing and, and are, are trying to get a, you know, honest advice from people. Um, there's lots of hidden, hidden fees and hidden commissions. Um, there's lots of poor investment advice. Um, as I said, when I, to be specific, when I looked at Dad's uh, investments, he'd been put into 12 funds, 12 managed funds. Um, he'd been given a couple of, also invested in a couple of annuities as well. And when I looked at the fees of all these funds, there was a lot going back to the person who was recommending the advice. So you don't need to be into, in 12 funds, you need to be in one. Um, and if that one is an index fund, you're getting just as much diversification in the share market as if you're in 12 different funds, um, paying 12 lots of fees. So, yeah, I mean, I've always been very angry that, that that people who are hardworking have concentrated on their own career, have really had to step aside and take up a second career to learn how to manage their investments. It shouldn't be that hard. It should be like going to the doctor where you get, um, you know, the best advice you can, funded, funded free for everybody. And uh, when you are in your old age and relying on it, you've got a nest egg. Mm. That's that should be how it works, and it just doesn't. And that that you know pisses me off. So let's um, let's go back a bit. When you uh, started managing your own investment portfolio, what was what was your objective at that point? Yeah, good good question. Um, I don't think I really had an objective. I mean, it became the objective became to live independently off it, uh, and that. Probably wasn't where I was at the start. Um, it was it was really just you know just this curiosity and could we do it? Um, what what kind of returns could we get? Could we make something big out of it? Uh, yeah, it was just this curiosity and um, and eventually, like I said, when I retired, it was yeah I can make a living out of this and I can I can live off the income and it's gone well and it'll keep going well. So yeah. I think that was the objective, but it wasn't the objective at the start. It was just to have a go, really. And how has that changed up through today? What's your objective today? Still the same. I, I mean, I, it's it's funny. I, I call this now the moonshot. So so Jenny is um, is working in a good job and gets paid well. So we, 
we generally live off her salary. Um, if you've been so successful with your investment portfolio, why is Jenny still going to a job? Why is she still working? I think that's just what she loves. I mean, we've had this conversation for about the last 10 years. I keep saying to her, you don't need to work. And she keeps saying, but I love work. She's <laughs> she's one of those people who if she won tax lotto tomorrow, I would still go back to work the next day. Is it because she, she can't stand being at home with you? Is that really yeah. what's going on? <laughs> Yeah, quite. She's possible. looking for any excuse. I work for free. <laughs> Just give me an excuse to get out of the house. Yeah, she actually pays them. <laughs> she's not actually going to work. Have you actually been to work to make sure that she's there? She could just be sitting in a cafe, just reading a book all day, coming home and pretending she had a rough day at the office. Yeah, yeah it's all it's, it's possible. Actually, I've been to her work. She's only got a hot desk, so yeah, it could be could there, be true. There you go. Yeah. She may just wander in and find a hot desk and say, yeah, this is where I work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so you've tried to talk her into to quitting, but she loves it. She loves it, yeah. Oh. Yeah, and so we live off her salary. That that basically covers our, our needs. Um, like you said, we're not flash people, but we do have, you know, expenses and we like taking overseas holidays and things like that. Um, and then we just – the benefit of that is that we, we can reinvest the dividends and the capital gains from the share portfolio and just keep compounding it which is good. I mean, occasionally we've dipped, dipped into it, like um, moving back from Toronto, we had to sell our house and buy an apartment in Sydney and I sold a big block of shares to fund that while we were waiting for the funds to come across from Toronto. So that money's now come back and I'll go back into the share market. So, yeah, it's, um, it is nice to have the fund to dip into from time to time, but, but generally it stays fully invested and, and it compounds. So when you say the objective today is the moonshot, um, <laughs> it's just to see what you can do. It's just the challenge of it, the fun of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and again, Buffett always talks about the number just being a score. It's 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 you know how how high can you go? Um, if you if if I keep extrapolating where we are now out by nineteen and a half percent and live long enough, well, yeah, we'll be very very rich. And it's. It's not the not the being rich that interests me. It's just the the game. It's the score. That's the interesting part. So, who do you think is going to benefit from listening to the series? Who should listen to this and why? I think eventually people who want to do their own investments should. I think we should spend some time on the basics for people. So, if you're somebody who is dissatisfied with your superannuation, the fund that you're in now, or the advice you're getting. If you're someone who maybe has come into an inheritance or something like that and wondering what to do, then uh, I think you could benefit from listening to this podcast. But certainly, I think it's going to end up being for people who want to do it themselves. And you know, at the outset, we should say that it, it does take a little bit of time, not a whole lot, and you've got to be able to stay interested in it over the years. There's, there's no point getting 19% return for a year and then quitting. That's not going to achieve much. You've got to You've got to stay at it for decades to, to see it compound properly and, and make it worthwhile. Well, what do you think the number one mistake is that people make when they're investing in your experience? I think it's fees. I think it's paying someone to give them advice, paying someone to set up a, an account for them, to you know, provide reports for them, um, to manage their money. Yeah, I think it's paying fees. You've always got to watch the fees. I, I remember just recently, actually, just thinking about it recently, Jack Bogle died. And Jack Bogle was the founder and owner of a company called 
Vanguard, I think, I think it's Vanguard, yeah, Vanguard. And he had he came to the same conclusion that I did, but he came to it much, much earlier on, and that was that people paid too much in fees uh, for their investments. And so he set up the Vanguard company, and they have a whole series of an index funds, which have very, very, very low fees. And and if you if you put your money in with him, you get the share market return, not above it, not below it. You get the share market return, and which is around 10%. But that 10% compounds year in year out, and you pay you know maybe a quarter of one percent in fees to get that, and that adds up over time. And that's a, that's a better outcome than people who put their money into managed funds who claim they get good returns, but then they, they start charging, well, they call it 2 and 20, so 2% admin fee a year and then 20% of the upside. Um, and that's if they outperform the market. So <laughs> there's been lots of studies that, that say that uh, oftentimes those funds don't. Um, yeah, so Jack Bogle and his passing and what people have written about him, you know, just hammers home to me the importance of not paying too much in fees if you're an investor. So is there anything that you would do differently, Tony, if you had your time over again? If you could uh, go back and talk to the Kino from 30 years ago, what, what would you tell him? I would have said start a lot earlier. That's that's probably the most important thing. I mean, I started, like I said, in the early 90s and I would have been, well, nearly 30 then, maybe was 30. Uh, and you know, if I had started ten, even ten years earlier, I'd be, you know, the the fund would be an order of magnitude bigger now than it is because that's how this works. At nineteen percent per annum, um, takes a long time to take a small amount to a large amount, but when it becomes a large amount, you know, that doubling happens every three to four years, and that that's when it really starts to become important. So the earlier you start. Um, the longer you have to compound and the bigger it is at the end. And I think I saw a graph oh, in the last 12 months of, of Warren Buffett's uh, net wealth, and it was expressed as a as a graph uh, over time, and on the y-axis was his, his fortune, his, his, what he's worth. And it, the graph is asymptotic, so it goes along relatively flat for a long, long period of time, and then all of a sudden it goes almost vertical towards the end. And that's what happens with compound investing. It it can seem like not much is happening for a long time. And then, um, you know, after 20 years, it becomes really important. You get some big wins as, as a big amount of money starts to compound and to double every three or four years. So the earlier you can start, the earlier you can get to that meaningful phase. By the way, if you're interested in having a look at that graph, I've put a link to it up in the show notes on our website. Go to QAV Podcast. So I think, you know, I remember when I was in my 20s, um, the idea of investing, uh, putting something away for when I was in my 50s just seemed kind of ridiculous almost. Um, I couldn't even conceive of being the age that I am now. But uh, what you're saying is the sooner you start, the better off you'll be. Yeah, and I guess even if people can start for their kids, um, set up a small fund, and again, when they, you know, if they start doing it not in their twenties, but in, when their kids are very, very young, um, a, it's a form of financial investing if you involve the kids in what's going on, and b, it's an, another twenty-year head start to, to compounding, which is really useful. Yeah, right. But I was like you. I mean, I was a complete dickhead when I was in my twenties. I was a young, young guy with a bit of coin, being paid a lot, single guy. 
in a big city, as you said, coming from a small city, it was just like Babylon. It was just fantastic. <laughs> but um, I didn't have much uh, much time for, you know, saving for the future either. Eventually, I um, I bought a house. That was probably my first investment and the first time I, um, you know, took out a mortgage and, and tried to save. But that didn't happen until my late 20s. So, Tony, you, you said you came from a sort of poor background. Um, you've ended up wealthy. Uh, what what are some of the challenges that come with that journey? <laughs> Look, they're nothing compared to the challenges of staying poor, that's for sure. <laughs> um, I can't really think of many. I mean, security is one of them. Um, I often joke with, with friends that, you know, you do move into a bigger class of bills when you become wealthier. Um, but that's hardly a challenge because you can, you've got the, the money to look after that. Um, yeah, I can't really think of many. I know when you're on my son's podcast, they asked if money buys happiness, and uh, your answer was, uh, "It doesn't, but it buys you the helicopter that can get you there." <laughs> is that true? It is, yeah. Or is oh, it I just don't have a... a helicopter, but yeah. No? I mean, obviously, you know, if I have a problem, I've got more resources to solve it than most people. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in an apartment overlooking the Sydney Opera House and Harbour Bridge, and the beautiful harbour and it's just you know it's it's lovely it's whenever i have a bad day i you know get pretty hard on myself and say you know don't be an idiot you're, you know, you're you're living a privileged wonderful life what are you getting upset about you just drink two bottles of grange that night instead of one yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that's one of the challenges i guess is you um you, you do have the opportunity to indulge so i've got to try and lose some weight that's a challenge me too, and I'm poor, so you know I don't think that necessarily comes with uh, money. In all seriousness, though, there must be there must be challenges uh, that you uh, beyond uh, the the guy who's supposed to be building my new kitchen didn't turn up this morning. I mean, what are some of the things, new skills you've had to learn uh, on this journey? Well, yeah, how to invest, and and I guess um, I guess there's again. I, I go back to Buffett a lot, but he's, he said a lot which resonates. He's, it was either Buffett or Munger who said that if you can't stand watching a share you've bought drop in value by 50%, then it's not for you. So that's one of the challenges is to is to learn to um, ride out those storms and to, to when something goes wrong to to revisit your assumptions on why you did it and have those assumptions changed and what's changed and why is the share down and and um, is it going to get better or should you sell or, or what? So, yeah, I mean, you can often – there's often headwinds in this game and you've got to be able to have the, the stomach and the and the experience to be able to get through those. Again, you, because you don't want to be a, a buy-high, sell-low investor. You want to be a buy-low, sell-high investor. Again, as Buffett says, when there's blood on the streets, you should be buying and when people are popping the champagne, you should be selling. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows – you know, buy low, sell high, but uh, knowing it and having the discipline to do it are two very different things. Absolutely. I remember it's, um, it is it is a discipline and it's also a process. I remember after the GFC when, you know, it was all doom and gloom and everything was going to, you know, collapse and the world was going to end and all that kind of stuff. About 18 months later, I remember saying to Jenny, it was company. It was this? It was this time of year? It was February. And it's the company reporting season. I said to Jenny, I said, "There's so many companies I can buy right now," and I just uh, put every dollar I had into it, and they just all tripled in value hmm. quite quickly. And yet, everyone you spoke to was saying, "I'm getting out. I'm selling. This is terrible. It's gone on too long. It's never going to get better." 
So you've just got to have faith in the process. So, again, like everyone knows that. Everyone knows buy low, sell high. Why don't people do it in your experience? People with some means, people who are intelligent, people who have an investment portfolio, why don't they follow the basic wisdom? Oh, it's, it's human psychology. There's a lot of human psychology in investing, as, as Daniel Kahneman started to, well, did write about and received a Nobel Prize about for behavioural economics. There's all sorts of tricks that get played on our minds um, by situations. And and uh, you get your nervous nellies and you get your people who anchor the, that, you know, they, they take the most recent results and project them into the future and can't see a way ahead. All those kinds of things happen and uh, and you know I get filled by them every now and then too but if you're aware they're happening and you read about them and you study them you can sort of pick them when they happen and, and think twice about things doesn't mean I'm always right but um, but your experience teaches you to be aware about them so you're in your mid 50s and you left Colesmeyer when 43 I was 43 I'm 55 now right. So you, you've, you retired at 43, basically. Yeah. Um, what, have, yeah. what have you done with yourself, apart from raising your amazing daughter, Alex, who was on one of my podcasts recently, uh, and you know she's one of my favourite people in the world. I've watched her grow up, had the privilege of watching her grow up from the sidelines. She's a, she's a very impressive uh, young lady. Uh, apart from that, what, what have you done with all the time that you've had since your mid-40s? Yeah, my golf handicap's come in a little bit, which has been... Great fun, and um, I also have a a, uh, a company with a mate of mine. We breed brace horses, and we race them occasionally as well, and that's been lots of fun as well. So those two things keep me reasonably busy, and it's only been in the last year or so that I haven't had to spend a fair bit of time with Alex. Um, so yeah, between all those things and the normal stuff of um, you know, because Jenny works, if we move countries or move house, it falls money to me to do that. So, yeah, normal sort of stay-at-home dad things to do. Um, but I do a lot of reading um, and, you know, still still spend a fair bit of time on the share market, especially this time of year, which is company reporting season. It gets intense for a couple of weeks in February and a couple of weeks in uh, August when you start to go through the numbers and, and look at the portfolio. And yet you claim to still not have enough time to listen to all my podcasts. <laughs> True. How, how many hours do you put out a week? Uh, four. Yeah. Okay. So that's not that much. Yeah. I, I, I probably listen to your podcast for an hour when I go for a walk. And um, probably the last six months I haven't been able to be that disciplined because we've been moving and, and various other things have been happening in our lives. So uh, but wow, I'll get back wow, into it. Wow. Just put them on when you play golf. That's the, I think you played golf more than Trump. That's saying something. I'd love to. Maybe that qualifies me to be president or <laughs> prime minister. Maybe it does. <laughs> All right, so let me wrap this up. Um, so I think here's the sort of plan I have for the podcast series moving forwards. We'll do uh, weekly shows uh, more often than not. Um, and I think what we'll talk about is uh, market updates. What's Tony thinking about this week? What's taking your interest in terms of What's going on in the market? What's going on with certain companies that you're paying interest to, um, paying interest in, interest to, whichever one of those is the correct use of the English language. Don't judge me. Um, 
we'll we'll maybe talk about uh, individual companies that you've invested in. We'll look at how what tools you use. What are the figures, the metrics that you look at when you're analysing a company? Um, we'll do some pr- free episodes. We'll probably launch a premium series where we'll get more into the details for the people that want to be more hands on and serious about this. Get into the the nitty gritty details, but uh, yeah, basically we're going to teach people how to be you, Kino. Maybe <laughs> not so much about the golf and the racehorses, but more about the others, how to get to the place where you can spend your days playing golf and breeding racehorses. Yeah, so you and I have talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the past. Well, I better stop here and explain what Maslow's hierarchy of needs is for people that have never heard of that before. It's a theory in psychology that was proposed by a guy called Abraham Maslow in 1943 in a paper he wrote called A Theory of Human Motivation. Maslow says, look, there's a hierarchy there. You have your basic physiological needs. Everyone needs food and water and sleep and shelter and sex. And once those are taken care of, then the next level of needs that you want to get taken care of are your safety needs, personal safety, emotional security, financial security, health and well-being, etc. Once those are taken care of, you might start to think about your social needs, friendship, intimacy, family. Then if those are taken care of, you can start to focus more on your self-esteem, feeling good about yourself, having a hobby or uh, trying to gain recognition in your profession or in sport, things that make you feel good about yourself. And then the the top of the, the pyramid, the top of the hierarchy, if everything else is taken care of, you can focus some attention on what he calls self-actualization. Uh, that's, you know, utilizing your abilities to their fullest or your talents, seeking some form of enlightenment or happiness, pursuing some sort of other goal that's not really got to do with taking care of your more fundamental needs, um, you know, finding the ultimate mate, uh, whatever it is. So that's what Tony's talking about here. But the top of the hierarchy of needs is uh, what's called self-actualization. And that's where you work out what's most important to you and have the resources to be able to establish that. And my, I guess, the, the thing that I found in examining what was important to me in my life was freedom. And it's going to be different for everybody. But when you get to that level of having most of your needs taken care of, you you can work out what's important for you and you can focus your life on achieving that. And uh, that's why I think Maslow's hierarchy of needs is important. All right, Kino. Well, mate, that's the end of the first episode. Um, Thank you for sharing all of that. Next time we'll be back and we'll, we'll actually get into... Some of the nitty-gritty about the uh, the Kino method, QAV, quality at value. Yeah, good. Um, so people can learn how to in take care of manage their own investment portfolio if they so choose, and uh, learn from somebody who's been very successful at it, spent decades studying it. And uh, hopefully those people can then uh, pay less fees, get a higher return. And uh, you know, take care of their financial future and their children's financial yeah, future. That sounds great. And then we'll solve world peace after that. <laughs> I've already oh, solved yeah. that. Okay, good. I'll yeah, see. yeah. Just put put me in charge. That's that's. That's simple. why we're on the finances. Is that right? <laughs> we're going down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going we're, down we're, we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, spiritual enlightenment and world peace. <laughs> taking care of those. Uh, moving down the scale. Right. Now. We just have to make you rich. Okay, got it. 
<laughs> that's it. Thanks, right, mate, see Well, that's the end of the first episode. I hope you enjoyed that. So you can keep listening to the free series uh, that come out every week where Tony and I talk a little bit about his system and his thinking around investing. If you're a hardcore investor and you really want to go deep on this stuff, at some point when you're ready, you might want to think about joining the QAV Club. You'll find details of that up on our website, qavpodcast.com.au. And you'll get access to extra episodes every week where Tony and I spend another half an hour or so going deep on some company analysis. But uh, there's plenty of free episodes. No hurry. Listen to the free ones until you uh, decide that you want more. And also QOV club members get to attend some events and get a special newsletter each week and all that kind of stuff. Uh, remember, though, we're not financial advisors. Tony's not a financial advisor, so please don't take anything that you hear on this as financial advice. We don't know your specific circumstances. You should really go see a licensed financial advisor. We're just here to talk about ideas and concepts about investing. So with that, good luck, and we'll see you again next week. Next week.